Well, good morning, everyone. Let me open us with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into our study of the book of Joel. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, as I do each Sunday, for the privilege we have of getting together as brothers and sisters in Christ at Lakeside. Lord, it's such an encouragement to be able to be taught from your word by Pastor Steve week after week, such great truths, and we thank you also for the opportunity we have in Sunday school to get together and to pray for one another and to bear one another's burdens, and also to, again, open up your word. So I pray today, Lord, that you will help us as we study uh, the book of Joel. I pray that you'll give me clarity and wisdom as I teach through things, and I pray, Lord, that as we continue to study this book, that you will draw our hearts closer and closer to you in these dark times. We ask this all Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today is one of those times where I'm really looking forward to teaching, even though it's a challenging thing that I'm going to be doing. Now, it's not challenging because I don't understand what the text is saying. It's challenging because it gives you so many opportunities to say so many things about so many issues. And so, as we dive into this, we're going to spend a few weeks, but we're in Joel chapter 2, and we find ourselves now at verses 12 and following. Specifically, the first section I'm going to cover is verses 12 to 14. And I'm thankful that we finally made it here, because what I was doing in building the case that Joel was building was a little bit challenging, because it was all doom and gloom. Joel began in chapter 1, and I've alluded to it many times, and I'll allude to it many more times, that the day of the Lord was approaching the people of God. Joel one fifteen, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. And it's just this warning to the people that God will judge. In fact, chapter 1 is all about the fact that God already poured out some judgment with the locust plagues that destroyed everything. But chapter 2 simply built on this in the beginning of the verse. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. And then verse 11, as we finish that section over several weeks... The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? And the answer is no one can. And there's a sense that the drama, not fictitious drama, the real drama of Joel has just been building and building and building. It's not spelled out the specific sin of God's people, but obviously they had turned their back on him. They had enjoyed a degree of material prosperity such that there had been leisure activities and and bountiful crops, and God had removed it all instantly with the locust plagues. Seems like they were enjoying all the good things of life and they forgot where the good things came from. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. In other words, every good thing that human beings enjoy is a gift from the Lord, but Judah had not been giving thanks to God, apparently. 
In fact, it seems they had been entirely turning their back on God, and so God sent all the locusts, the wave after wave that destroyed everything, in part to get their attention. In fact, he, he took away their ability to even worship. All the sacrifices on a daily basis that were supposed to be made, they were gone. They couldn't do them. And when we get to chapter 2 and what we've been covering over the last several times that I taught was that God was saying, in essence, you think chapter 1 was bad, you think the locusts were bad, something coming that's worse. There's going to be a human army that's going to come, that's going to be as relentless and numerous and pervasive as those locusts, but it's going to be a real army And what makes it so terrifying is that real army, as verse 11 says, is being sent by God. Now, those weren't godly people, but God was using, he was saying, I'm going to use a foreign nation, and many scholars think that later, historically, this played out with the nation of Assyria, but he's going to use a foreign nation, and he's making it clear, disaster is coming your way. The day of the Lord is going to be far worse than a locust plague. This human army is going to be worse. And it really is just a dark, dark picture. That's why I don't necessarily enjoy painting that picture, because it really is dark. It's interesting. We live in Florida. If you've lived in Florida longer than a week, you get used to, and you can read when the bad weather's coming. You feel it in the air. You look up. You see the clouds gathering. And you can say, oh, okay, it's coming. That's what Joel is doing on a far greater and more significant scale. The storm for the nation of Judah is coming. And as I presented all of those dark clouds growing, as I said, it was evidence in the case for repentance. That was just a teaching device. But everything is pointing to our text this morning. Things are bad. In fact, it's catastrophic. And something worse is coming. Something that no one will be able to endure. As I was thinking about this, and probably because I had last week read a little bit and talked a little bit about Revelation. But it's interesting because Hollywood periodically will make some kind of apocalyptic movie. There's going to be a meteor that's going to wipe out the earth. A couple of those came out at one point. Or it's going to be global warming and there's going to be an ice age that kills everybody. Or some kind of shift of the tectonic plates and everything's going to go under. And they always have the same basic thing. Somebody figures out that danger is coming and then we all feel helpless because you can't stop it. Until something happens and something happens and then it all, all tries to have a happy ending. But the common theme is that there's nothing we can do in our petty humanity to stop what's coming. And there's a sense in which that's actually true when it comes to the day of the Lord. And yet, unlike Hollywood that makes up fictitious things, the Bible always, even in the midst of a discussion of unprecedented disaster, always gives hope. And we're going to begin to talk about that today. It's a much more enjoyable thing to talk about is hope. And the hope can be summed up in that word, 
that I've referenced over and over again, and it really is the sum total of what we're going to be talking about today. Repent. Repent. As we're going to start seeing, really through the rest of chapter 2, Joel is saying, but it's not Joel actually, it's God is saying, yes, the clouds are gathered, the storm is coming, but I'll still give you time to repent. Stop sinning. Return to the Lord. The warning is the day of the Lord is coming. If you continue in your sin, it's going to get worse. The hope is you don't have to continue in your sin. You can repent. Really, in one sense, even though we have to develop it and it was centuries before Jesus walked on the earth, Joel is saying now to the people of Judah what Jesus said. Matthew 4.17 From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we're going to talk a lot about repentance as we move forward. Everything about judgment is there, and you could almost say, well, so what? Well, the so what is now. This is the answer. This is really the answer if you fast forward when the preaching of Peter at Pentecost and the people were cut to the heart and they said, what must we do to be saved? That's what we're dealing with. Joel's already hinted at this. In chapter 1, we talked about the fact that he was calling all the people together for a national Thing Verse 14, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders, all the inhabitants of the land, to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Now he's really going to develop what that looks like. It's going to take a couple of weeks to get through just the first part of this. But I can't think of anything that I would rather teach on than the truths that we're going to see here, because they all point back to Jesus Christ. So, let me regroup and jump into the text as it exists. A storm's coming. If the people don't change, God says an army is coming that's going to wipe you completely out. There's a drumbeat of war. The people are terrified. They're surrounded. There's no other solution. So what should they do? Follow along as I read Joel chapter 2. I'm going to read the... Verses 12 to 14, and then I'll get into our outline. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Now, as I was presenting the first part of this chapter as evidence in the case for repentance, now we're at repentance. And so my outline is very simple as we go through these verses. Three marks of true repentance. 
three marks of true repentance. And I will get through the first one and part of the second one today and then we'll keep going. But the first point, and I'll elaborate it, the first mark of true repentance, true repentance is timely. True repentance is timely. And I couldn't think of a better way to say it, but let me explain what I mean. Look at verse 12, the very first part. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Yet even now, meaning even though you've turned your back on God, and even though God's already sent the locust blades to wipe you out, it's not too late. Even now, there's hope to avoid the gathering storm. Declares the Lord. This is God speaking. There's no mistake. Yet, even now, as bad as God's hand of discipline was, He's providing them a means of escape. As I thought about it, there's a little bit of a paradox because in verse 11, God makes it clear, I'm going to send that army to destroy you. I'm leading that army. They're responding to my command. So God's sending an army against his people, but his whole purpose is to drive them back to himself. Return to me. It could be a function of the fact that I've been saved for a long time now. I'm trying to do math in my head and I can't go fast, but a while. Not quite 30 years, but upper 20s. I sometimes lose sight of the wonder that God ever extends an invitation to sinners. God's making a personal appeal to his people saying, I'm here. As bad as things are, I'm here. Come to me. And he's making it clear. Everybody that's hearing the words of Joel is supposed to listen. And as it's appropriate to their hearts, he wants them to respond. But there's a sense of urgency. Do it now before it's too late. And it's so easy to see how these jump centuries ahead, millennia ahead to us, because God still gives the gracious invitation now to sinners. For the nation of Judah, how long did they have? They don't know, other than they had that moment. At that time, God said, even now, return to me. I couldn't help but think of similar words in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 3, 7 to 8, and then Hebrews 3, 12 to 13. I just skipped for speed's sake. But I can still remember preaching this. Beginning at verse 7 of Hebrews 3. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Today, 
if you hear His voice. Yet even now, if you hear His voice. A little further down in verse 12. Take care, brethren, there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For the nation of Judah, as Joel was presenting the word of the Lord to them, he was making it clear, return now. You're given a window of opportunity now. He wasn't saying, well, how about you see how the next year's crop go? Maybe the locusts won't come back and then you can give God a try. Not at all. God was not saying that. God is a jealous God. He was saying, come to me. Even now, God was not giving a guarantee beyond the present time. They are alive, they are breathing, now is the time. Today was their day to repent and return to God. So I said a mark of true repentance is that it's timely. Repentance is not something to be done tomorrow. If in your heart you decide, well, I'm going to repent tomorrow or next Thursday or in two weeks, then you don't have a heart of repentance at all. In our prayer circle, Dennis praised the Lord for the memorial service yesterday for Susie Walsh. If you were there, you heard some amazing testimonies of a humble woman who lived her life to please the Lord. That was a great testimony. Here's the flip side. I remember when Debbie and I were sitting at dinner and I got a text that she had died. It was shocking. I had talked to Terry the Sunday before. It was just a little heart procedure. How routine are those? She had no idea when she woke up with Terry and went to the hospital that she was going to be standing with Jesus that day. particularly the longer I live, when I see things like terrorist attacks or I hear about murders or even car wrecks, they all have something that sticks in my mind. The people that died had no idea they were dying that day. They woke up and they put on their clothes and they started to go about their business. They thought they had more time. We think that. And yet, it's presumptuous because God has already ordained the number of days we have. And when He calls sinful humanity to repent, as He called the nation of Judah to repent, yet even now, today, there is an urgency to repentance. But we think we got time. James addressed that in a different context of James chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. James wasn't rebuking planning in life. What he was rebuking was the arrogant attitude that says, I dictate my time. I dictate when I do what I do. I would plead with you 
I would plead with anybody. Don't delay repentance. (laughs) Yet even now was the call to the nation of Judah. Return. That's the call now. The longer I teach this, the more of a sense of urgency I have of, of thinking through the people and praying for them and talking to them about the Lord that don't know the Lord. Because our days are dark. We don't have to look hard. The clouds are all around us. The storm in our own day is coming. Repent. As I tried to think through this call to repent, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me. And recognizing the sense of urgency, the sense of as long as you're breathing you have time, but don't presume you're going to keep breathing. I thought about the thief on the cross. And there were two thieves on the cross. And for those individuals, talk about a storm, they were dying. They were already nailed to the cross. Mark fifteen thirty one says this, In the same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, he, can't, he cannot save himself. In other words, they could care less about the thieves on the cross. They were just mocking and targeting Jesus because they hated him. Verse 32, let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Again, mocking and taunting, enjoying the suffering of Jesus. And we find these little words at the end of the verse. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Matthew 27, 44 confirms it. The robbers who had been crucified him were also insulting him with the same words. It's hard to fathom the depravity in their hearts because they're dying and yet they're mocking the other person dying between them. You could almost hear, yet even now, declares the Lord. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts because something happened during that day. Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered. The one who had been mocking him, he'd been saying the same things, said, Do you not even fear God? Since you were under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. I can't picture a closer call than that. You're on the doorstep of hell and you are ushered into eternity with Christ. Why? Because in that moment, as much as he could do on the cross, he turned to the Lord. He repented. Yet even now, 
the Lord told his people with the storm clouds gathering and judgment on the horizon, return to me. So the first mark of true repentance. True repentance is timely. The second mark, and I'm only going to be able to just start talking about this today. But the second mark, true repentance involves a sincere change of heart. True repentance involves a sincere change of heart. Continuing in verse 12, Return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. This really is explaining the heart of what true repentance involves. Again, God gave the invitation. The time is now. There's an urgency. Yet even now, but he explains in more depth what it is that he wants the people to do. Return to me. Now, there's something about this call that's a little bit unique. Repentance is still required today, but there was something a little unique with what Joel was doing because of the nature of who he was addressing. God had called and made promises to Abraham. And Abraham and his descendants were called into a unique relationship with God. They were God's people. Yet God always knew that though he was calling them to be his people, he was calling a people to himself that were sinners, they were fickle. There's a sense, and what Joel was calling the people to do was going back to the very core of their Jewish identity. God was calling them to do the one thing that he had always expected and demanded of them. Deuteronomy 6.4 is very familiar in a Christian context for a Jewish people. It was the Shema, something they recited. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. It was always about the heart. And of course he's not talking about the organ we have. He's talking about the inner essence of who we are. Where our intellects reside. Where our wills exist. God said, you're my people. You love me with all that you have. And of course, that's, again, not surprising to us because Jesus, if we look at our half of the Bible, so to speak, as most of us not being Jewish, Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the great and foremost commandment. So God had made clear in the Old Testament and Jesus reiterated that God had not changed. The important thing is that God wanted the heart. He wanted the love and affection of the heart. 
And yet God also knew, because He is the sovereign Lord of the universe, that after mankind fell, His heart was corrupted. So on the one hand, God said to His people, love me with all your heart. On the other hand, God knew they were sinners and would stumble and fall. I think this is illustrated so clearly in what we see in the events surrounding a very familiar event in in Jewish history with the exodus from Egypt. I can't tell you how many times as I'm teaching through completely unrelated portions of Scripture, my mind is drawn to these accounts. What part of the accounts? The people that come out of Egypt. I don't think about that part, although the stories are fascinating. God had worked miracles, ten plagues. It was remarkable. Brought the people out. The Egyptians run after them to try and kill them. God wipes them out, parted the Red Sea, etc. It just really was remarkable. But you have all these people that have been slaves for 400 years. They don't have a clue, but God called Moses. And God began to give to Moses the expectations for the people, all the law. Exodus 24. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, and this is what my mind always comes back to, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Go a little further. Moses, verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, we will be obedient. That's really touching. I mean, they just witnessed miracles. They'd come out and Moses lays out, here's what our God who just saved and rescued us who performed a miracle of the Passover that will continue as a perpetual statue. All of this happened. Here's what he wants you to do. And they said, we're on board. Got it. Verse 24, Exodus 24, verse 18. Not very far down. Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So, I don't know what day we're on. It's October 3rd. So if I went away for 40 days, I'd be back, what, the end, of, the end of November, something like that? Somewhere around there. It's not that long. You'd still remember my name. Okay, I'd come back. So you read the rest of Exodus, 25, 26, 27, 28, all those chapters, 29, 30, 31. And basically God's on the mountain with Moses, giving Moses all the requirements. He's preparing the people. This is how you become my people. This is how you live as my people. It's not how you become my people. They're already his people. This is how you do what I want you to do. Moses, this is everything. All the details. The people have already said, we're going to follow you. We're going to follow. Moses, you told us so far, we're going to follow you. Moses is just getting more details. Exodus 32. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, delayed, it's like 40 days. This is not the longest time in history. The people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Talk about out of sight, out of mind. (laughs) Who's that? 
Now God knew what was going on. Exodus 32 verse 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Again, you have people a short time before saying, we will obey, it doesn't matter, we're going to do it. And not even two months later, they're like, eh, Moses who? And they're worshiping a golden calf. Now, now you may think I'm on a tangent, but I'm actually not. I went back to that because that's the history of the Jewish nation. That's a snapshot that played out throughout the rest of the Old Testament and it's playing out the same way. That's why the warnings of Joel are given. Even though it's centuries later, generations later after the time of Moses, the people kept doing the same thing. God said, love me with all your heart. I will give you everything. I'm there for you. That's what he's saying in Joel. Return to me with all your heart. They were his people. He's saying, I'm here. Yes, the storm is coming, the judgment's coming, but I'm here. Again, Joel's not treading new ground for the nation of Israel. God laid this out long before. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, also written by Moses... And this is just an example. There are many more, but this is an example. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 27. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. That's what Joel is all about. God's giving them the invitation to do that very thing. Come back to me. What we're seeing here again, is the continuation of redemptive history. God is telling yet another generation of His people, return to Me and we'll have a relationship again. And My judgment will go away. You'll have My love. I did this earlier in Joel, but I talked about the fact that Deuteronomy really summarizes everything about the nation of Israel. They were promised, if you obey me, you'll have blessings. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. Joel's just a continuation of that theme. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, when you call them to mind, in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God, and obey Him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. What's happening in Joel is they're being given the opportunity to return before they're finally scattered. Here's the point. God 
continues to give people the chance to return, to repent. As we dig into this, I'm excited over the next few weeks of the things we're going to get to talk about. Because it's going to be centered on what is going on in the book of Joel, but that will center us on what repentance is like, what our salvation is all about. And it will also give us all the insight we need into the only hope this dark world around us has. And it's all pointing to Jesus It's one of those times where the truths of Scripture have such clear application today that it's amazing. You'd almost think God was the one that was writing it. Hmm. Repentance. It's what they needed then. That's what's still needed today. So let me encourage you. I've been doing it. Read and reread Joel too. It'll help you. But also think carefully in your own heart about where you stand with the Lord about your relationship with Him and if you hear God prodding your heart don't delay repent yet even now declares the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, this is one of those times where the truths of your word are beyond my limited human ability to explain. And yet that's what you've called me to do, Lord. So I trust that you over the lessons ahead will give me the insight that I need to be able to articulate in some way truths that we can understand. Lord, I thank you that you still call sinners to repentance today. Lord, I thank you for every one of my brothers and sisters in this room that at some point came to the realization that they were standing before a holy God and the storm clouds had gathered and they were in danger of judgment. And Lord, they listened and they repented and believed. Lord, for some of us, it's not a matter of repenting unto salvation, but we've got sins that we need to turn away from. Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return. I pray that we would take it seriously. Lord, help us be honest with our own hearts. Our hearts are deceitful. Help us know where we stand in relation to you, the sovereign and holy God of the universe. And Lord, if... Today, someone hears your voice. Help them not harden their hearts, but help them to respond to your invitation and turn to Jesus Christ, the only hope to escape the storm. We pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.